Hello, and welcome to Heal Podcast. I'm a trauma psychotherapist and your host, Lucy Ritchie. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Sophie to Heal Podcast. She and I have been wanting to connect for quite some time now, but seeing as she lives in the future, aka in Australia, which is about 14 hours ahead of me, I'm in Toronto, which is Eastern Standard Time. It's been a little challenging. So I'm really happy that we were able to schedule this podcast episode, which is centered around all things anxiety, including high functioning anxiety, facial blushing, and also the mind-body connection. Let's get started. Hi, Sophie. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing really well. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you for asking me to be on your show. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. So I just love the way that you share information. You're so direct, knowledgeable, and in my opinion, you're a very good communicator. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about your background with our listeners and maybe a little bit about your journey to how you started to specialize in anxiety. Well, thank you, Lucy. So my background is as a medical journalist. And so I've worked for two decades covering health and science for Australian television, the equivalent of, um, you know, CBC in Australia. Mm. And uh, so everything I come at is very much from an evidence-based point of view. But what happened was a couple of years ago, I had an episode of burnout myself. I went through a, a period of feeling really burnt out and it was only when I really understood the nervous system and how that worked and how I could use the nervous system and rebuild that to get out of burnout that I really realized that that was the missing piece of the puzzle when it comes to our physical and mental well-being and so now I share a lot of that on social media and I, I work with teams and I work with companies now and talking to them about understanding the nervous system and understanding how we, you know, react and respond to other people and how your nervous system is always looking for signs of safety. And this is something we're not even conscious of. It happens below the level of consciousness. So it's not something that you choose to do. Your nervous system is just always doing it. And sometimes it can help explain why you might have a physical or an emotional reaction to something which seems sort of out of the blue. Mm-hmm. It's like, why do you react to something that is a trigger for you yet other people don't seem to react in the same way and when that happens that's your nervous system responding Mm -hmm. yes I love that you just said that the nervous system does seek connection regardless of trauma it just means that it, it can be more challenging to find connection and more anxiety provoking um, to find that connection with a safe or calm other. That, that's so true. Yeah. And it's that reaction that you have when you're with someone, you, someone and you feel so like you can be your true self. You can be, you can really let your guard down and feel relaxed. And that's your neurobiology working to, to feel you pick up on other people's sense of calmness it has a response reaction to you as well. And so that's the, the mind-body connection and that's your neurobiology at work. And it, it helps explain why we, you know, sometimes when you can spend time with someone, <clears throat> you feel completely drained or you feel, oh, wow, that was that took a lot out of me. Or other, other times you feel you spend time with someone and you feel so uplifted and you feel like, oh, I feel lighter and I feel so connected and full of joy. And that's your nervous system responding to not only how the person you're with is 
speaking, but their um, their facial movements, how much they're smiling, and then you end up smiling back at them. Mm-hmm. And so all this, you know, this these things happen without us even really realizing, but it can help explain why we re- respond and react the way we do to the people around us. Yeah. And it can also be something that you can think about if you're if you're with someone and you find you leaving those interactions feeling worse you can that can help you explain why it's happening and then you can put those boundaries in place and it may be for example sometimes you know when we come to certain holidays and we have to spend time with certain family members that we might not see and we might not you know necessarily agree with some of their views but and, and it can be quite triggering for people understanding that and sort of preempting that that person is going to has that impact on you can help you turn up to that event feeling more centered and rather than reacting to whatever that person does or says you can realize that a you're probably not going to change them but all you can react all you can do is look after your own reaction and and have control of how you respond to what's going on. Yeah. And that's where having that calm and regulated nervous system really comes into play. And we get that calm and regulated nervous system through our daily habits and through things like having a meditation and a deep breathing practice and, and having movement and in our lives. And, and it's not something you can just switch on when you need to. It's embedding those habits every day that helps you to manage those stressful moments or those triggers that are inevitable. You know, we all have things that are going to make us feel triggered. Mm -hmm. Yes. I feel like the word routine should be a synonym for resilience Mm. because solid routines, um, as odd as it may seem, is the base for the moment to moment resilience we need in in everyday life. And I just want to normalize for those of you listening that unresolved trauma can make things like meditation, Uh, very challenging and sometimes even unhelpful. So just know that the point we're making here is that routines uh, create a sense of predictability for the body and for the mind, which sort of suggests to the unconscious that we are in control. And so when life does throw us curveballs, that resilience that we build from, you know, having recurring routines like exercise, nutrition, even prayer and so forth, um, gives us the capacity to manage the surprises of life. So alternatives to meditation, like I said, it could be prayer, it could be sahaja yoga, even kickboxing, swimming, um, anything with movement, like you mentioned, Sophie, may be better suited uh, for some of you listeners. So that said, there is one key item that we cannot opt out of when it comes to these routines and building resilience. And, you know, that's sleep. And now sleep is a really interesting one that you pick up on, because a lot of people think sleep is very passive, that you just go to sleep and you lie there and then you wake up. But there's so much going on in your brain that you don't realize when you're asleep. Your brain is processing memories and deciding what to hang on to and what to get rid of. And that process happens when we're asleep. And so if you're not sleeping properly, that process can be not carried out as effectively as we would like. And so sleep is not passive by any means. Sleep is a very active process in maintaining your good physical and emotional health and a, and, a, and a regulated nervous system as well. So ensuring that you're getting adequate sleep and, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult to function on, you know, there's, there's no set amount of sleep that everyone should get. 
But if you're getting fewer than eight hours, you're really shortchanging yourself. Uh, It's very hard to function properly on fewer than eight hours quality sleep. And if you if you do find that if you're listening to this and you think, oh, I'm only getting six hours and then, and you know, this might explain why I'm not feeling as, as good as I otherwise could, then sleep is one of those core pillars that we need to consider for our well-being as well as well as other things. But if you're not sleeping well or getting enough sleep, it's really a, a core function of well-being. And yeah. uh, it's difficult to do all those other habits that we just talked about if you're not getting adequate sleep. Yes. And unfortunately, many of us are not getting adequate sleep. Some of you listening right now might recall your physician, maybe your nutritionist, or even your therapist asking you about sleep. This is because it's at the root of most mental and physiological illnesses. Mm. I like I actually see sleep as a major issue with survivors of trauma. And it's often because that vigilance remains activated inside. There's a persistent sort of sympathetic charge going on, which produces cortisol and therefore negatively impacts the ability to fall asleep and and stay asleep, which then fuels more anxiety uh, for the next day and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. So I, one of the things that I focus on a lot in my work is particularly what we call high functioning anxiety. So this is when to the outside world, someone with high functioning anxiety appears super confident you know they have their act together they they might have a a a sort of senior job they appear that everything's going really well but it's almost like the the duck sort of or the swan going along the water but underneath there's the little legs paddling 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 and with high functioning anxiety that person to the outside world everything seems fine but underneath and you know when when you sort of scratch the surface they're filled with this sense of anxiety and worry about the future, worry about how they're performing, worry about how they're holding it all together. And one of the issues with this particular form of anxiety is that they, the person looks on the surface as if everything's fine. And so they're not the sort of person that you would, you know, think, oh, maybe I should check in and see how they're doing. Maybe mm. I should check in and, and, and just reach out and ask, you know, how are you going and are you okay? And that can be very, very isolating then for that person because, you know, they're often the ones that are are doing the reaching out and checking on other people, but they really need support too. And so even though from a, you know, performance point of view, someone can be very high functioning, they might hold a really senior leadership position in the work that they do, but but at the same time, they're still struggling with this sort of daily anxiety and feeling, you know, as if they're not able to, you know, really relax and really enjoy life because there's this undercurrent Mm. of anxiety running through what they do. And by, I think the first thing is accepting. And whenever I write about this on my social media or on my blog that I send out, or I talk about it in with teams that I talk to so many people identify with that concept of that, you know, on to the outside world, they appear like everything's fine, but internally they feel very, very anxious And I think it's important, you know, if that does sound like something that people identify with to recognize that you you can feel better and you can, you know, accepting that that you have that condition and that there are things you can do that can help you manage it and that Mm -hmm. you don't have to sort of continue to feel that sense of anxiety. And anxiety is really worrying about the future, you know, thinking about and what happens when we do that is that we're not 
in the present. We're not, you know, being mindful and thinking about and appreciating what's going on around us because we're anxious about what's coming up. We're, mm. we're, we're sort of thinking in the future and we're not enjoying this very moment and getting all the benefits of whatever's happening in that moment for you. Yeah. And, you know, it's exactly like you were saying and like we were saying with the nervous system trying to connect. If we're worrying about the future, we're actually unable to get that connection and be in that sense of flow and that presence. So if our bodies are holding on to past fears, then the physiology that happens within us sort of influences the way we react to certain situations in the present. I want to bring something up to you that many people don't really talk about, which is facial blushing. Mm. There was a story in the news several years back that <clears throat> that really stuck with me, which highlighted that a young teenage boy battled with facial blushing, though he was a pretty social kid. Um, it seemed like any emotion that he felt would trigger his face to go red. And it really pains me to say this, but the condition of facial blushing caused him to take his own life. And I'm grateful that, you know, he left a letter and in his note, in his letter, it's, it read something like, um, I just can't take the humiliation of facial blushing. And this is the only way out. So I first want to, you know, share my condolences with his family um, who have been advocating and raising awareness for this rare condition. And secondly, I want to share that there are options. Uh, there's things like neurofeedback. And don't worry, I'm going to be recording a lot on neurofeedback. So make sure you subscribe and come back to check those episodes out because neurofeedback is incredibly interesting in my opinion. But just to let you know quickly, you know, neurofeedback can help to calm overactive brain waves that are associated with facial blushing um, or social anxiety. And there are more invasive options as well. And I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this properly, but it's endoscopic thoracic sympathectomy surgery. And the short version of this is ETS surgery. So ETS is a surgery where patients have the option to either clamp or even cut particular nerves that lead to facial blushing. It was originally um, found to treat excessive sweating, but, you know, over time they learned that this also can reverse facial blushing, but, you know, you always want to talk to your doctor about this. Um, this is not my expertise. This is about surgery. So certainly talk to your doctor, but these are options that are out there that you can get familiar with. So Sophie, I'm pretty curious because you have a background in journalism. So you might have seen this condition um, with some of the people that you interviewed because they might have been anxious. Um, you know, they're put on the spot with cameras around them. Yeah, that that is it's it's really interesting that you raise that because when I was working as a television journalist and I would be interviewing people, which is a very for for me it was what I did day in and day out. I was with TV cameras and so. For me, it was just like a, a part of my life was to, you know, be, be around TV and cameras all the time. But often for the people I was interviewing, that might have been the first time that they'd been in front of a TV camera. So for them, it was a, an innately stressful situation. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that I did notice with some of the people that I interviewed over the years, that they would get that, you could see them, you could see the redness um, starting sort of around their neck and often it would just like, you know, go up on into their face. And it was a purely physiological reaction to the stress, the internal stress that they were feeling about being in that moment. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so fascinating about the mind-body connection is because, you know, the, the body, you know, we can't just sort of 
think your way out of feeling anxious. The body is going to you sometimes responds in that way. For some people, it could be shortness of breath. Some people, they might get, you know, feel shaky. Other people will have that facial flushing and feeling red. I actually worked with a, 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 a journalist when I was really young who, and that was his, he was, he suffered from social anxiety and that was his way. He would get that, that flushing and that redness and, mm-hmm. But he learned to manage that. He learned to manage it again through thinking about from a mind-body point of view what he could do so that he could rather he, he knew that that was going to happen when he went into a situation where he was with people that he didn't know or strangers. So through practising those mind-body techniques like deep breathing and meditation and actually learning to calm your nervous system and regulate it as much as possible, it then helps you manage those situations and manage those reactions. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I do, Lucy, as well, is I do a lot of, um, because of my background in communications, I do training for people on how to be a presenter and how to speak in public. Mm-hmm. And what there's some fascinating research showing that if you have, obviously, you know, a lot of people don't like speaking in public, they do get quite anxious and feel nervous. And a lot of people do have that facial flushing as a reaction. But there was a really interesting study showing that when you start to have those physiological reactions of of nervousness, if you reframe it in your mind as feeling excited, so rather than thinking, I've got to get rid of this, I've got to get rid of this feeling, but actually going, telling yourself, oh, this is me feeling excited about this opportunity. This is me Mm -hmm. feeling excited about what I'm about to do. They found in a study that, and this was a study where they were getting people to get up and sing karaoke and people who didn't have any singing ability were were being asked to sing in public, which is obviously pretty stressful. Yeah. They found with when when, when people were told to reframe those anxious feelings as excitement, that it actually really helped them feel calmer mm. and they actually performed better. Wow. So rather than trying to get rid of those feelings and push them down or or feel more shame for having those feelings, actually just sort of flipping the switch and saying, oh, my body's feeling excited about this opportunity. Yeah. And then you can actually then just go forth and, A, first of all, you're accepting the feelings. You're not trying to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. And then you're turning them into a, of a sense of excitement. And, you know, like every feeling, you know, a positive one or a negative one, they don't last that long. They'll come and go. But by if we try to push those feelings down or we feel guilty for having them or we criticise ourselves for having those feelings, you end up feeling, you end up feeling worse. Yes. So that's why I love that reframing. Of, of those feelings instead of thinking of it as anxiety or nerves you tell yourself wow this is my body feeling excited about what's about to happen yes and it really does make a difference it really does help and that can help no matter what your your particular symptoms might be whether it's having that facial flushing or whether it's having you know feeling shaky or whether it's having the shortness of breath they're all on this they're all the same reaction to the stimulus which is oh you know I'm being put in a situation where I could be judged by other people yeah. and and I don't know how it's going to work out so that fear of the unknown is often what's driving 
those sensations, the fear of how am I going to be, you know, how am I going to be responded to? How are, particularly if it's some, you know, you're going in to meet people that you don't know or you're standing up to give a talk. Mm -hmm. It's the fear of the unknown is what really drives a lot of those anxious feelings. And so having those ways of coping, like doing those practices we talked about, the deep breathing every day and the mindful movement so that when you need to, when you need that little bit of extra help, you can feel centered, you can do some deep breathing, you can reframe it as an excitement and then you can get get through it and actually thrive and actually enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. And that's the, the hope rather than thinking, oh, this is something I just have to struggle through. Yes. When you're talking about excitement, when I look on the opposite end, it's fight or flight. Um, which is, you know, if you're looking at a continuum scale of one to 10, excitement is one to five, and then um, six to 10 would be fight or flight. If we're staying in that one to five, that is actually a, a space where we're more prone to being able to connect. We're more prone to social engagement. So um, what I'm hearing you say is this excitement, you know, if we can reframe it and sit in that seat of this is a good thing, (laughs) looking Mm -hmm. at it like, wow, I'm pumped, Uh, you know, I'm excited to example the talk or example connect with, you know, friends I haven't seen in a while, Um, then we're more prone to being able to stay in that, that state of presence and cultivate that sense of flow instead of getting into the panic and worry and getting hijacked by all those like phobic um, thoughts and, and fears, um, that could lead to facial blushing. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's really interesting when you, when we think about it that way, because if we have those little tools and techniques that we practice every day, that then helps you manage your neurobiology. It helps us manage those physical reactions because it can be, it can be pretty, you know, um, disconcerting if you feel like your body's sort of, (laughs) having these reactions and and you can't control them, whether it's facial flushing, whether it's, you know, some people will get, you know, like their heart starts pounding or whatever that um, the physical reactions are, but it really does. If you can stay within the, the, the excitement and, and feeling um, engaged rather than letting it sort of escalate up to that, that fight or flight and really sort of going overboard, Mm -hmm. it makes a huge difference. And, what it's interesting that we're talking about this because what happens if you if you are having chronic stress for long periods you know the body isn't designed to to be in that fight or flight state all the time the body's designed to have that homeostasis where we something stressful happens and we we, we react or we respond to it and then we come back down to feeling you know regulated again but if you're going through periods of chronic stress for long periods of time that's when you your body starts to show the physical symptoms of chronic stress and that's when you can end up feeling burnt out which is you you end up you know you've got the high cortisol for so long but then what happens is the body actually shuts down and goes into that 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 phase of the nervous system where you it's you it's like you have nothing left in the tank and you just completely physically exhausted, emotionally exhausted, uh, very disillusioned about what you're doing. And that's why we're seeing a lot of burnout because, you know, over the last few years as a society in the whole world, we've been through so many changes. And for a lot of people, it's been very stressful. 
And so they've been in that fight or flight and that stressful state for so long that you actually end up feeling burnt out. And the only way out of burnout is really A, to recognize what it is, to look at the symptoms and say, you know, yes, this is, sounds like what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. And then think about how do I rebuild my nervous system back to being able to cope with the world around me. And it can take a while to get back to feeling normal and to be able to deal with the daily stresses of life. And for me, when I went through my burnout experience, it was, it was pre-pandemic. But then when I had to cover the pandemic for my work, which was, you know, very long hours and very high stress, I had to make sure that I was, my priority was ensuring that I had those practices that were going to be able to keep me feeling grounded and keep me calm because otherwise there was no way I was going to be able to um, function and I didn't want to get back to feeling burnt out. And so the practices that were really crucial for me were things like like meditation and deep breathing Mm -hmm. and movement things that are going to nourish your nervous system so think about tai chi or yin yoga or anything very gentle that's just going to get your body moving but in a in a gentle way Mm -hmm. and then the other part of it so that's really the three parts for me of recovery were I call it calm connect and commit and so the calmness was about meditation the Connection is about prioritizing, connecting with people who you really have that sense of joy and you really have that strong feeling of connection and co-regulation. Yep. And, and you've, when, when you're with that person, you all those feel-good you know, neurotransmitters are released. And so really focusing on connecting with people who you feel connected in, in that way, you know, when you feel good. And then the commit part is committing to some movement every day even as gentle as, you know, a five-minute walk or, you know, five or ten minutes of Tai Chi, but doing that on a regular basis so that your nervous system starts to feel calm and regulated again. And it helps bring you out of that that burnt-out state where you're just shut down, gradually back up to feeling like you can cope with the stress of the world again. Yeah. And it really does make a massive difference. You can't think your way out of burnout. Yeah. That's what I realized. Absolutely. We can't think our way out of burnout. So instead we have to behave our way out. Exactly. Yeah. And I love the three C's you mentioned um, to help us do just that on a daily basis, which is calm, connect, and commit. And so for listeners who are finding themselves in a rut or having challenges sticking to a routine, psychology does tell us that there's no motivation coming. So don't wait for it. In other words, don't wait for the moment uh, to come where you're going to feel like exercising because in most parts, it's, it's really not coming. Yeah. Instead, when you activate the behavior you want, like exercise or eating well, it starts to activate a reward within you, which is causing you to develop the motivation to repeat that behavior. This is known as behavioral activation. So it's like you say, we, we really can't think our way out of it. We must behave our way out of it. So the more we do it, the more we become prone to doing it as a default instead of relying on possible motivation. And it's interesting because like you're saying, Sophie, commitment to a routine can fuel us to navigate our daily lives. Then interestingly, the more we stick to our well-being routine, the more access we have to resilience and therefore the more tolerance we have to manage the surprises that life can throw our way 
But then, you know, conversely, if we stay stuck in a funk, then any obstacle that life throws at us, um, it's going to feel unbearable because not only do we not feel in control of our own selves, but now we feel overwhelmed by the natural stresses of life. Mm. So the short of it is that, yes, like our routines need to become a non-negotiable part of our regular habits. And it's the thing, and I, I like the fact that you're focusing on doing it every day, making it routine and ritual, because the way the brain works is we create new neural pathways when we do something over and over again. It's a bit like it's a bit like a forest and creating a new path. And if you do something and you do it over and over again, the brain just sees, sees that as routine. And then you don't actually then actively have to choose to do it. Think about like how much we do that we don't, it, it's sort of subconscious or we just do it automatically, like, you know, brushing your teeth or tying your shoelaces and all the different things that are involved with doing that. So what we want to do is have the habits that we want to embed in our daily life, we want to have those habits as just routine as well. And the way to do that is just by thinking about when can I put that into my day so I don't actually actively have to choose to do it. Mm -hmm. My brain's just going to go, oh, okay, she's awake. Now it's time for her meditation, you know, as soon as she wakes up because she does that every day. And so you're not actively choosing to do it. The brain just knows, right, the next thing she's going to be thinking about is doing the meditation that she does every single day. And that's what I love about um, the way our brains work, that if we if we just do things routinely and then it doesn't become something that you don't have to rely on motivation because, let's face it, if you were relying on motivation, it's going to be up and down. Absolutely. But what, what works is, is the consistency. That's what really is the game changer for new habits. So thinking about just small amounts of whatever it is that you want to embed for your self-care but just doing it every single day you're better off doing five minutes of something every day than once a week doing like an hour-long meditation and I think that's you know one of the things for me I was always particularly with movement I was very much that black or white thinking thinking like oh if I don't do like an hour workout what's the point you know and and what I realized was you're better off to do from a nervous system and a neuroscience point of view, you're better off to do 15 minutes every day rather than an hour once a week, because then it becomes a habit Then it becomes embedded. And it's once you understand how the brain works, then you, then you can see it is actually beneficial to do that. Those smaller amounts of those positive activities every day that are going to really make you feel good rather than waiting just to be a weekend warrior and doing it once a week on the weekend. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful. Oh, I love this. Well, we're almost up and I don't even want to go. I want to just keep picking your brain here, but tell me where can people find you? Yeah. So uh, they can come to, if you're on Instagram, my Instagram handle is Sophie Scott and the number two, or if you, my website is just sophiescott.com.au and we're also just got a new YouTube channel, um, which is, and you can find that on my website as well, because we're wanting to share as much evidence-based resources to help people manage their mental health and understand their nervous system and understand how the brain works. Because, you know, the things we've talked about in this, in this chat, Lucy, these are the little habits every day that are going to help you help people flourish and get you from feeling like you're just surviving into that 
feeling of thriving. And that's what we all want. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for connecting with me. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Heal Podcast is an educational platform that aims to depathologize trauma through meaningful conversations. None of the information provided is intended to replace conventional therapy, and all listeners are invited to seek their own professional services for their unique concerns. We are thrilled to have our listeners as part of our growing community. We strive to make our conversations as educational as possible and, of course, interruption-free, which is why we do not include advertisements. So with that, I ask that you please subscribe to Heal Podcast, like and share it with your friends, and of course, with your social media to support the growth of this channel. I'd love to stay in touch with you. So come follow me on Instagram at Heal Psychotherapy. You can follow me on YouTube and you can also come visit us at healpodcast.com where we do give away lots of free resources. You can get a free ebook and you can also submit a question for our next guest. Last but not least, I'd like to take a moment to thank Jordan Bernard for creating the music for Heal Podcast. And of course, I'd like to thank you so much for being here. And as always, I'm truly rooting for you.